Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Tonight we're going to look at two events. Um, One definitely happening on Tuesday, April 4th, A.D. 30. And the other, potentially, that same day, or potentially the next day, Wednesday, April 5th, A.D. 30. That is uh, the temple controversies and Jesus' teaching there in the temple on Tuesday, and then the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. Uh, so let's begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll kick right off into our study tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together and to study. I ask that you would bless our time together. And as always, point us to the Lord Jesus as we study his life and his words and his teaching. Help us to learn from him. Help us to obey him. Help us to follow him. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. All right, if you want to open somewhere in your Bible, open first to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, if you have multiple markers in your Bible, maybe one, even if you have just one, You might want to put another marker starting at Mark 11. If you have another marker or something to use, Luke 20. Uh, We're not going to be looking at the same thing in each gospel tonight, but more than last week, we're going to see a lot of uh, crossover between those synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they tell a lot of the same stories and the same events tonight. So let's start tonight with the temple controversies and teaching. Monday, April 3rd, A.D. 30. Now, we're building on where we were last week. Last week, we looked at Sunday and Monday of Jesus' final week. And actually, that Friday and Saturday, as Jesus had the the dinner in Bethany, and Mary anointed his feet and his head, and then the triumphal entry, and then Jesus' um, lesson of the withered fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree and the withering of the fig tree. And so I want you to see each week as we go through this, we're building on top of what happened the previous days, or for us, the previous week in our lesson. So last week, we looked at Jesus' triumphal entry. And the withering of the fig tree, remember that fig tree pointed us to the judgment that was coming to Jerusalem, the judgment that was coming upon the Jews because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the religious leaders' hypocrisy. So tonight we're going to go closer and closer towards an ultimate showdown between the religious leaders and the Lord Jesus. We know that this showdown will end eventually with Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his death. But tonight we're going to see sort of those last moments that Jesus has with the Pharisees before he spends time with his disciples in the upper room and then his arrest and his trial. So this is, if you were, the straw that broke the camel's back between Jesus and the religious leaders. They have had enough after what we see this week. So with the prelude of the fig tree still in view, remember that withered fig tree representing Israel's faithlessness, Israel's fruitlessness, and how that was personified in the religious leaders of Israel. So whether we're talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, we call them together the Sanhedrin, we see Israel's faithlessness and fruitlessness personified there in those religious leaders. And the withering points us to the coming of God's judgment. The coming of God's judgment, which we know occurred in part... A.D. 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So we've gone through Sunday, Monday, and here it is Tuesday, and we see that Jesus is coming again to the temple, coming again to the temple. In Matthew chapter 21, uh, look there in verse 23, Matthew 21, 23, when he entered the temple. So after coming into Jerusalem, cursing the fig tree, the triumphal entry, cleansing the temple. He's gone back to Bethany, and now he's coming back to the temple here on Tuesday morning. 
And that is the setting for all the events that we're going to see today uh, in the, the teachings and the controversies in the temple before he leaves back for Bethany and stops on the Mount of Olives to give what we call the Olivet Discourse. So we're going to see the fruitlessness and the faithlessness of Israel, not just personified in the religious leaders, symbolized in the withered fig tree, but we're going to see that faithlessness manifested in four what I've called gotcha questions. Now, if you're familiar with how Jesus interacts with the religious leaders, this is their tactic to come at Jesus with a seemingly impossible question to answer without getting himself in trouble with someone. Because they're between a rock and a hard place. They don't like Jesus, but the people do. And so they are always trying to either to get Rome to see Jesus as a problem or to get the Jewish people to see Jesus as a problem. And so we see how they try to play both sides here and get Jesus trapped with one side or the other to get in trouble with the Jews, the Zealots, the Romans, the Herodians, whoever it is that's in the, in the context, they want everyone against Jesus, and they use these sort of gotcha questions trying to trip Jesus up and catch him and trap him where someone will turn against him. So we're going to see this in a series of four questions from the religious leaders. Number one, the first question we see here in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 20 is, by what authority are you doing these things? Look there in Matthew 21, 23 again. Jesus comes to the temple. The chief priests, the elders of the people come up to him as he was teaching. He says, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now you'll see the exact same question reported in Mark eleven twenty eight and Luke 20, verse 2. We don't have to turn there, but you'll see that exact same question reported there in this setting. Well, as is common for Jesus, he responds with his own question. And in Matthew 21, 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then also I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So they're trying to catch Jesus in a gotcha question. Because if he says, my authority is just from man, it's, it's, I made it up, then they say, well, you're a fraud. And if Jesus dares to say, my authority comes from God, which he's done before, then they can call him on, on blasphemy and stir up some, some group of people against Jesus. But Jesus responds with his own question, a gotcha question of his own. The baptism of John, he says, where did it come from, from man or from God? Now, the religious leaders are caught then in a trap, aren't they? Because if they say John's baptism is from man, they're going to anger the people because John the Baptist was viewed very favorably by all the people. But if they say that his baptism was from God, then they have to give legitimacy to John's message, which was what? Jesus is the Messiah. So he catches them kind of in their own trap and plays the same game with them. I'll tell you what, I'll answer you if you'll answer me. And Jesus traps them in a question as well. They're caught then in their own cowardice, their own indecision, their own ignorance. And it says that they refuse to answer Jesus' question. And in response to their refusal, verse 27, they say, we do not know. And Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you. By what authority I do these things? Jesus is not intentionally withholding information from people. Because these are not people who really want to learn anything from Jesus. And Jesus knows that. So Jesus refusing to answer their question is not him refusing to give people that need truth, truth. They don't want the truth. They can't handle the truth. So Jesus is giving them what he says is not casting your pearls before swine. Jesus said that in the Gospels. He says, I'm not going to give you what you're looking for. You're not really asking me a sincere question. I'm not going to give you a sincere answer. You deal with your own unbelief and how you deal with the baptism of John. And to prove his point further with this question, he tells three parables, um, only one of which is listed in all three Gospels, the wicked tenants. The first and the third, the two sons and the wedding banquet, are only recorded in Matthew's gospel. So let's look very briefly at Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. 
Matthew 21, 28. Again, Jesus building on this uh, unbelief of the Pharisees. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus says, I'll show you exactly where you stand on John the Baptist. You rejected him. You don't believe him. There's your answer. And he uses this parable to show it. This vineyard master has two sons. He says to the first son, go and work in the vineyard. He says, I won't, but changes his mind and goes. To the second son, he says, go and work in the vineyard. He says, yes, I will go, but then doesn't. And so Jesus is painting a picture of two different people here. The religious leaders and the unbelieving Jews who with their mouths say we love God, we follow his law, but they reject his servants. That's that second son, isn't it? The ones who said, yes, we'll work for you, but then refuse to. Whereas the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, those who were in sin but have now turned to Jesus in repentance, those are the ones who, like the first son, said, no, I will not work for you, but then repent and change their minds and do work. And so the question Jesus puts before them is, so who is on God's side, really? The ones who only say it with their mouth, but then disobey? Or the ones who refused, but then repented? The point Jesus was making is that those who were seemingly unfit seemingly unfit for the kingdom were entering the kingdom while those who were seemingly fit for the kingdom were not entering the kingdom an obvious jab at these religious leaders who rejected Jesus and rejected John just as they had rejected all the prophets and that's where the next parable takes us in Matthew 21 33 through 46 Mark 12 1 through 12 and Luke 20 9 through 19, Jesus says in Matthew 21, 33, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, those people that were going to work it for him, and he went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so Jesus paints this picture, just like you rejected Jesus, me, he says, just like you rejected John the Baptist, so you are always rejecting and persecuting the prophets. And you are just like these wicked tenants who the master put in charge over the vineyard. Remember a picture of Israel, the vineyard. He put you in charge over them to lead them and to help them. But you have killed his servants one after the other, after the other, after the other. Rejected them, persecuted them, beat them, and killed them. And so Jesus ultimately says, the father sends then his son. Surely they will believe the son of the master and respect him and obey him. But no, they do even worse. They murder him to have his inheritance. And Jesus poses the question to them after the parable, what do you think the owner will do? They said to him in verse 41, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. They pronounced judgment on themselves, didn't they? They didn't really pick up what Jesus was saying. What do you think will happen to those wicked tenants, Jesus says? They said, well, they'll get what's coming to them and they'll lose what they have and the master will put them to death. You can see Jesus almost nodding in approval knowing the judgment that is going to come upon them and all of Jerusalem. One more parable Jesus tells, and this one again is just in Matthew. 
Matthew 22, 1 through 14. I won't read it to you, just to summarize. Jesus tells them that the master is going to throw a wedding banquet for his son. And he sends out servants into the streets to invite those who were previously invited. But they reject the servants. They beat the servants. They kill the servants. And in response to this rejection of his invitation, the master, the king, goes out and he kills those who had rejected the invitation. And then what does he do? He sends more messengers beyond this party that was previously invited. And he says, I want you to go into the highways and the byways and invite anyone and everyone who will come to come to the wedding feast. Now, what is Jesus' point? We, we kind of we see with lenses uh, after the cross, don't we? Jesus is indicting the religious leaders as those who heard the invitation but have rejected it. While he's saying now the invitation has moved beyond the Jews, beyond the religious leaders, to whom? It will go now to the Gentiles. And they will come, Jesus says. And so the servants go, they call, they're rejected. The king kills those who rejected the invitation, and then he sends out more servants to invite everyone. But then we see one more little scene at the end of this parable, Matthew 22, starting in verse 11. One more scene. We could have ended it there. Jesus made his point. But there's more of a point here. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This one little post-credit scene that Jesus puts at the end of the parable doesn't seem to fit because you, it seems that you've already gotten past the bad news and you've gotten to the good news. The bad news is people have rejected the invitation and they're punished while others receive the invitation and they accept it and they're welcomed into the feast. The end, the point made. But there's one more little point to be made. If you come to the wedding feast, you must have the right garment on. And if you do not have the right garment on for the wedding feast you will be removed into this place called the outer darkness, which is just a synonym for hell. Could Jesus' point be any clearer here? He's talking to the faithless religious leaders of Israel, unbelieving Jews who had refused God and had refused God's servants, the prophets, time and time again, and now they were refusing his only son, and he was promising them, if you persist in your unbelief and your hard-heartedness to the things of God, you will face God's judgment. Not only that, the blessings that did belong to you in the Old Covenant are going to go to the outsiders. Those who, Paul says Ephesians 2, were far off, they're going to be brought near. And those promises are going to go to them. If you look in the back of your book, if you have a book, page 167, a series of questions here about this first one. Uh, it's question one under point B, <laughs> little Roman numeral two and three. Thinking about these parables and the servants that are called to work in the vineyard and the, the tenants that are called to go work and the people that are called to go invite, Think about this question, question number one, B, Roman numeral two. How can the church be the kind of vine growers that are pleasing to God? So if we just take those parables at face value and say the faithful servants worked for their master, the faithful servants loved the master, the faithful servants bore fruit for the master, and we see easy application for us as members of Christ's body, don't we? If we're called to be faithful servants, faithful vineyard workers, we must be at work for the master, obeying the master, loving the master, and doing what the master says. That next Roman numeral number three, the very end, 
What does it mean for the guest not to be dressed in wedding clothes? What happened to this guest? Whatever happens here at the end of the parable, he doesn't have on the right garments, and he's removed. Cast into hell in spiritual terms, but in the story, just cast outside of the banquet. So what's the deal with that? What, what is the right wedding garment? What did he need? Well, apparently, the, here's the point. He was in the right place, but he had the wrong garment. And so the solution to that seems simple. We all want to be in the wedding feast. We all want to be present at the wedding feast. And to be present at the wedding feast and welcomed into the banquet, we need to have the proper garment. Now, if we're taking this physical parable and seeing the spiritual lesson behind it, we know that the garment we're talking about must not be a physical garment. It must be a spiritual garment, right? And so what spiritual garment must we come into God's presence with? Well, obedience, faithfulness. The Bible uses one term for this that kind of encompasses all that, and it's the word righteousness. We must be right with God. And if we're going to be welcomed into the wedding banquet, we must come with the righteousness of God. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders, if they would have thought this far, they didn't even get that far, but if they would have thought this far, they would have said, oh, okay, so obey the law. Check off the Ten Commandments. Do all the 613 other laws, plus all the customs and all the traditions and all the stuff we've added together. Surely all that stuff added together will get us into the wedding banquet. Surely that kind of obedience and that kind of obedience to the law will be the garment that God is looking for to let us into the banquet. And Jesus' point is the same point that Isaiah made. All of your righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. You do not own the proper garment to come to the wedding feast. And you cannot work for the proper garment to come to the wedding feast. You must be given the righteousness of God to come into the wedding feast. He must give you the garment to wear. And that is what we call salvation. Because through faith in Christ, He takes your filthy rags... And in exchange for your filthy rags, he clothes you in his perfect righteousness. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, not even thinking this deeply into the parable, they they didn't get that far. If they would have stopped for a second to understand, they would have seen that the same one who invites them to the wedding feast is the one who provides the garment for them to come to the wedding feast. But every step of the way, they have rejected, they have persecuted, they have disobeyed. And because of their unbelief, they are without the proper garments. The question for us tonight would be, do we have the proper garments? Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ that comes only through faith in him? Well, we go to question number two. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Um, let's just for fun read this from the gospel of Mark Mark chapter 12 that's the wrong scripture reference but it's in verse 13 Mark 12 13 almost there Mark 12 13 They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So there's the the motive again, to trap him. And you see the Pharisees teaming up with the Herodians. Now, if you know your little Jewish politics at this time, that's that's not, those are strange bedfellows, to say the least. The Pharisees are Jews. They're zealous Jews. They don't like Rome. They don't like Rome telling them what to do or governing them or being involved in their worship at all. The Herodians, on the other hand, were Roman sympathizers. And they sympathized with Rome in their puppet king, King Herod. So they're supporters of his. And so it's strange that the Pharisees are coupling up with this other group, 
which they could not be any more different, coming again to trap Jesus in his talk. And you see their motives revealed. To trap him using any means necessary, even violating their own conscience is probably. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinions. They're flattering him. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. More flattery. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So you see what they're doing? They brought along the Herodian sympathizers, the Roman sympathizers, to ask the right question in front of the right people to trap Jesus with them and make more enemies for Jesus, even though they were enemies too. The enemy of my enemy is my enemy. Is that the thing? The enemy of yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the, the strategy they were using. And so they try to trap Jesus here saying, Jesus, after flattering him a couple times, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or is it not? Should we pay taxes or should we not? Again, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, period. All the Jews, the zealots would be angry with Jesus. You're a Roman sympathizer. You're a traitor. But if he says no... This group of Herodians could stir up trouble with Rome and say this man is a rebel. He's a zealot who refuses to pay taxes to the government. Well, Jesus confounds their efforts because in his answer, he proves himself to be neither. He is neither a zealot nor a Roman sympathizer. Do you remember how Jesus answered the question? He says, give me the coin. Give me the coin that will pay the tax. Whose image is on the coin? The emperor's image is on the coin. Caesar, Tiberius at this time, his image is on the coin. And remember what Jesus says? So give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus is in essence asking the people, whose image is on the coin? Caesar. We'll give that to him. And if Jesus could rhetorically ask then, whose image is on you? The answer would be God. And so Jesus' answer is very simple. So give Caesar his little piece of money, but give yourself to God. Now what kind of wisdom is that from this, from this teaching? And the people marvel at it and they can't really make an answer of it. Nobody can be mad at that. Jesus has said, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar. It's just money. But you belong to God, so give yourself to him. Who can be mad with that? And Jesus confounds their efforts yet again. Question number three, trick question. We talked about it in our study through heaven. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Look at Matthew chapter 22 again. Beginning in verse 23, Matthew twenty-two, twenty-three. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. That's the most important thing. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up his offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the, so too the second and the third down to the seventh after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So they're painting this picture for Jesus, these Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus, who seems to agree with the Pharisees that there is a resurrection. And so again, they want to trap him with a ridiculous scenario. Using the old covenant law of a brother who, if he dies, leaves his wife, his widow, to his brother, called a kinsman redeemer or a liverite marriage. And so this whole Old Testament law is turned on its head to trap Jesus in an impossible scenario. She marries the brother. He dies. Another brother. Another brother. Another brother. Down to the seventh. And then finally the woman dies and the question comes to Jesus. So in the resurrection, Jesus, everybody rises from the dead, the seven brothers and the wife. Whose wife is she? thinking they're going to either get Jesus to deny the resurrection or maybe stump, stump him and change his mind about the resurrection. 
But Jesus answers in uh, two main ways. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, if you think about the Sadducees, some of the highest religious leaders in Israel who knew the scriptures, so they thought, who studied the scriptures daily, and Jesus, this vagabond from Nazareth, dare tell us you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he says, verse 30, For in the resurrection they, are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In that way, they're like the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. So Jesus says you've got two errors here. Number one, God is the God of the living, not the dead. What's he saying when he says that? God is the God of the living, not the dead. Jesus is saying that Moses died, but Moses, God, is still the true God. Abraham died. But God is still his God. David died, but his God is still the true God. So is God the God of David and Moses and Abraham in their death? Or are they still somehow truly alive and will one day be resurrected? And so Jesus said he is the God of the living, not the dead. The patriarchs are very much still alive, according to Jesus, and will be in the resurrection as well. And number two, he says, your second error is a misunderstanding about the resurrection. You don't understand how all this works. You're ignorant, and those things have not been revealed to you. So again, verse 33, the crowd heard it. They were astonished at his teaching. And in the great wisdom of Jesus, the Son of God, the Sadducees don't dare question him in the presence of these people who perceive that his wisdom is from God. Question number four comes. Matthew 22, verse 34, actually verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, seems like it might not be a hard one to answer, right? Jesus could just pick one and say, that's my favorite. <laughs> or he could, he could somehow interpret what they might be going at and say, well, that's the most important. But again, they weren't asking a legitimate question, and they weren't looking for a legitimate answer. They were looking to trap Jesus once again into denying some portion of the scriptures and to call him on blasphemy. In fact, beyond the Ten Commandments, there are 613 written laws in the law of God. Separate individual prohibitions or commandments that constitute the law. Beyond the Ten Break those down into all the little spheres that Moses and the Lord do in, in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, and you have 613 individual commands. On top of that, by this time with the Pharisees, you know this, the innumerable man-made traditions and customs that have been layered on top of God's law. And so with thousands of options and looking to trap him, they say, which one is the, which one is the most important, Jesus? And Jesus answers them by summarizing the entirety of the law. Not the customs and traditions of men, but those 613 laws, the Ten Commandments, Jesus summarizes them in two statements. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the first commandment, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Jesus adds mind, soul, and strength. He says the second commandment is likened to it, the second greatest, and that's quoting Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so weaving those two commands, love God, love neighbor, into one command, Jesus says, that's the whole of the law and the prophets right there. Love God and love other people. So again, seeking to trap Jesus... They actually leave room for Jesus to put them in their place because his insinuation in all of this, as we'll go through the rest of the Gospels, his insinuation is that in this is that you, Pharisees, religious leaders, you neither love God nor your neighbor. So looking to trap Jesus, they leave room for Jesus again to actually trap them. Look at question two in the book. The question starts on page 167, uh, but the real questions come on page 
168. Um, question 2A. Look at the last part of that little paragraph there if you're looking at the question. What do you think Jesus saw in this scribe and in his question that was different from all the other questioners? Jesus responds to this scribe who asked this question, you're actually not far from the law of God. You're not far. You're right there to grasping it because it's so simple. Love God and love people. What did Jesus perceive in this question? Well, he perceived the quibbling of the religious leaders, the petty nature of the religious leaders that had missed the forest for the trees. Jesus says, you're right there. You're right there. You know the law. Most of them had memorized the law. Certainly most of the Pentateuch they had memorized, put to heart, cited it, quoted it, written it down, maybe even taught it to their families and their children. And Jesus says, you're this close. If you would just see the big picture, don't miss the forest for the trees and quibbling and arguing about man-made traditions and the letter of the law while missing the spirit and the heart of the law. And really that was Jesus' indictment to all of them, wasn't it? Your legalism, your heartless observance of the law is greater than your heart for the law. Question number two, uh, section B there, Roman numeral two. (laughs) What specific action can you take this week to show God's love to someone. If those two commandments are so intricately entwined, love of God and love of neighbor, what can you do personally? Just one thing. What can you do to show the love of God to your neighbor? And in loving your neighbor, not just your next door neighbor, but anybody, a human being, but in showing your love to your neighbor, you're also showing your love to God. The Pharisees, the religious leaders had missed this. They missed the point of the law by observing only the letter of the law. The last question is Jesus' question. Having heard all the questions from the religious leaders, Jesus has had enough, and he says, I'm not going to take any more questions from you. Instead, I'm going to ask a question. Look at Matthew chapter 22 starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So after four questions from the religious leaders, Jesus turns the tables and asks them a question, saying, verse 42, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. Now, we know that. Matthew's gospel begins with that. Jesus Christ, the son of David. They knew the Messiah was going to be an offspring, a descendant of David. And so in terms of headship, not just his immediate father, but whose son will the Messiah, the Christ, be? Well, he's going to be the son of David, the son of Abraham, they say. And Jesus says in verse 43, Well, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So you see what the question is? If the Messiah or the Christ is David's son, his descendant, David is his father. Why then does David call the Christ or the Messiah his Lord? And they're try- he's trying to trap the Pharisees in there because they're mad at Jesus for exalting himself. In their opinion, they say this, he's made himself equal with God. And that's a real problem for the Pharisees. You say you can forgive sins, Jesus. No one can forgive sins but God. How dare you claim to have the authority of God? The Christ, they say, is just the son of David. But Jesus turns it on their head and says, yeah, he's the son of David, but he's also David's Lord. 
From the book, page 36, you'll see this quote. Jesus' quote was not a denial that he is the Davidic Messiah, but an affirmation that he is more than the Davidic Messiah. He is a descendant of David and, at the same time, David's God. He is a descendant of David and, at the same time, David's God. Verse 46, it says, No one was able to answer him, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. If all four questions reveal that these religious leaders missed the point, Jesus' final question puts the nail in the coffin. And from here, in, verse, in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus goes on to pronounce what we call seven woes, W-O-E-S, seven woes, which just means condemnations, on these religious leaders for their hypocrisy and unbelief. In other words, they have, they have come to the end of their ropes and patience with Jesus. He's come to the end of his patience with them. They have asked him all the questions they need to ask to know they want to kill him. And he has asked them the question that reveals their unbelief and who he is. And now that it's all laid out there on the table, Jesus in chapter 23, kind of mirroring what we see in the Old Testament with the woes and mirroring what we see in Revelation with the judgments and the woes pronounced on humanity, Jesus delivers seven woes or judgments and condemnations on these religious leaders. And we can sum them up in three main headings. Okay, Number one, he condemns their selfish ambition. Their selfish ambition. He says, you preach and you teach, but only to gain glory for yourself. Your heart for God is not there. Your heart for other people isn't there. You don't love God. You don't love your neighbor. You only love yourselves. Number two, he says, you're arrogant. You're puffed up in your knowledge and in your understanding, supposed understanding of the law, your doctrine seems to be all in order, but you're puffed up by your knowledge. And you're not using that knowledge to serve people, and you're certainly not using that knowledge to submit yourself to God. So you're arrogant. Number three, main heading, you're greedy. In the end of it, Jesus says you're only in this for yourselves, to make a name for yourselves, to make glory for yourselves, and to make money for yourselves. In fact, it is at the end of these woes, Matthew 23, 37 through 39, it's at the end of these woes, you remember a few weeks ago, where we saw Jesus lament over Jerusalem. After this all-out conversation with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, after his questioning of them, after their rejection of him, after him pronouncing judgment on them for their unbelief, he goes and he laments and weeps over Jerusalem. Dr. Cook says in page 38 of the book, he wanted to protect them like a hen protects her chicks, but their refusal to welcome him as Messiah sealed their doom. Then if you're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12, or Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 20, I think, you have a seemingly out-of-place story of the widow's might. A fitting illustration, not really a parable, Jesus watches this happen, and he brings it attention to it you know the story that this widow she comes and she gives all that she has a meager amount now it seems out of place to tell that story at this time or to make that observation at this time after this heavy stuff has just been laid on the religious leaders and there's this judgment upon their unbelief and their faithlessness and then jesus says oh take this widow for instance how she gives all that she has not seeking glory for herself not seeking a name for herself, but sacrificially giving all that she has. But if you think about it, this is a very fitting illustration for what we see here. Because we see the humble, meek, lowly faith of the helpless as infinitely greater than the powerful, arrogant, hard-heartedness 
of the elite. And so Jesus says, you can have all the robes and all the turbans and all the glory and all the phylacteries on your forehead and your elbows and your knees and wherever else you want to put them, the little pieces of scripture. You can have all that, Jesus said. But what you need is the heart of this poor, meek, humble widow. Question number three on page 168 asks us about this widow. Why did Jesus point out this widow's actions to his disciples? And was this widow's gift only about money? Why does Jesus point out the widow? Well, to contrast her sacrificial faith to that of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And no, it wasn't about the money because as Jesus observed her, she, she gives all that she has, which is very little. In contrast to the rich who give gift upon gift upon gift. The author says on page 39, because the giving is not measured by amount, but by sacrifice. The giving is not measured by the amount, but by the sacrifice. And so Jesus wants to contrast her sacrificial faith with that of the religious leaders. Another quote from page 39. Those who give all to follow Jesus will find in him all they need and could ever want. The religious leaders giving out of their abundance to be seen by men miss it all. But this poor widow who gives that small amount, but it's all she has in her love for God, Jesus says she actually has it all. So Jesus leaves the temple, this conversation being over. The religious leaders don't ask him any more questions, and Jesus has nothing more to say to them. He leaves, and on his way back to Bethany, seemingly stops on the Mount of Olives to deliver what we call the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing, I just want you to be aware that the Olivet Discourse describes two main events. Two main events. Number one, the destruction of Jerusalem. The Olivet Discourse describes, number one, the destruction of Jerusalem. Number two, Jesus' second coming. Now, if we've been you know, following the themes to this point, from the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, the exchange with the religious leaders, we've seen this is coming for a long time. This is a fitting message for these unbelieving religious leaders. This is a fitting message for unfaithful Israel. Judgment is coming. With the destruction of your city and your temple, and ultimately the judgment of the world when I return on the clouds of glory. And the first one points to the second one. Jesus says, you see this temple? It's all going to be carried away. Not one brick left upon the other. And this whole place will burn like a, a mountain of fire. And Jesus says, but that's nothing compared to the judgment that is coming. So when Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers, it's a picture of the destruction coming to the temple. The destruction coming to Jerusalem. But even that points beyond itself to the ultimate judgment coming upon all the world. And this happens, you can mark um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 2. This happens as Jesus is traveling back to Bethany, leaving Jerusalem, going up the Mount of Olives. And you can imagine as they go up the Mount of Olives, they turn around and they're once again astonished by the beauty of Jerusalem. And there's the temple with the marble and the gold glistening in the sun. And they say, oh, Jesus, isn't the temple beautiful? And Jesus says, I tell you what, not one brick will be left upon the other when it's all said and done. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, they naturally ask, when? Jesus, you're saying the temple's going to be destroyed? When will this happen? Jesus begins then to describe some natural and moral disasters that will occur 
before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. We need to be aware that when Jesus talks about these signs, these beginnings of birth pains, these are not necessarily dealing with events that happen immediately before the second coming. These are indicators not of the immediate end of the world, but Jesus says, Mark 13, verses 7 through 8, these are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus also warns of coming persecution, but he promises that the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world before that. Now, if you're sitting there scratching your head thinking, well, wait a minute. So before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the gospel will be preached to the whole world, but it wasn't. Jesus is speaking figuratively. Paul picks up on what Jesus means. And you can mark these passages to read later. Romans 16, 26, and Colossians 1, verse 6 and 23. Paul understood that when he says the gospel is preached in all the world, and Paul confirms that, he says the gospel is preached in all the world. He means the known world of the Roman Empire. And he means as far as Spain and Rome and Greece and Asia Minor and Africa, the gospel is being preached there. Paul understood that to have been fulfilled in his lifetime. The gospel is spread into all the world, not to the end of the globe, but as far as their minds could reach, that's where the gospel had gone. And so Jesus' point to the disciples was, yes, the end is coming. Yes, judgment is coming. But that should not be a source of fear and intrepidation for believers. It should not make us cower into a corner and do nothing. What's Jesus' point? No, you should go with boldness and hope and anticipation. More than that, it should encourage and exhort us to be watchful, to be alert, and to be ready. Jesus closes this section with three parables again to make his point. Matthew 24, verses 42 through 25, 30. Mark 13, 33 through 37. And Luke 21, 34 through 46. Those are all in the handout. Jesus gives three parables. In Matthew and Mark, there's this parable of a servant and his master. And if the servant had known what time his master was returning, what do you think the servant would be doing? Working for his master. Matthew adds another little illustration in there of a thief and a master. And the roles are sort of reversed. Where we are the master of the house. And if we had known what time the thief was coming, we would have been ready for the thief, right? Either way, the point is simple. You should be ready and watchful and alert for the coming of the master. The coming of the thief. Which are all just pictures for the coming of the Lord. Luke summarizes these parables with just a simple statement by Jesus. So stay awake. Whether you're the servant working for the master or you're the master looking for the thief, how can you be alert? How can you be ready? Stay awake. Be watchful. Peter says be sober-minded, alert, watchful. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 30, Jesus gives one more parable, that of the ten virgins. I don't have time to... To go into detail in the parable of the ten virgins, you know the story. There were the virgins who were ready for the coming of the bridegroom. And they had their lamps trimmed and burning, ready for the coming of the parade. But then there were those who did not have their lamps trimmed and burning with the oil filled. And they had to go find oil somewhere. And by the time they got back, the bridegroom had already come and gone. And remember, parables aren't there for us to decipher each little picture and each little thing and try to make it mean something. The big point is what matters. And the big point, Jesus says at the end, is what? So be watchful. Be ready. For you do not know when the bridegroom is coming. The main point of Jesus' teaching here is to be ready and to be watching. But not passively. Be active. Working for your master, serving the master, expecting him to come at any moment. 
The last event we're going to discuss tonight, and it is very brief, the chapter is very brief, the point is very brief, is the betrayal of Jesus. And there's a warning here in the betrayal of Jesus for all of us. Judas goes and seeks out the religious leaders and says, look, I don't know what his mission is, but I'm at the end of my rope with him. And so what will you pay me to deliver him to you? And in Judas's greed and his arrogance and his unbelief, he betrays his master, the Lord Jesus, to these hostile religious leaders. And we look at that and we scoff and we gasp, how could you do that? But this story is there for us too, to beware. Beware of religiosity. Beware of hypocrisy. Beware of hard-heartedness. Beware of unbelief. Beware, believers, of disobedience. Because with our unfaithfulness and that disobedience come the same woes that Jesus delivered to the Pharisees. Unbelief, disobedience, greed, arrogance, hard-heartedness, and hypocrisy will be met with nothing but the condemnation of God. And when we see the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, and we'll read the details in the coming weeks, we ought to remember that judgment is coming, not just on Judas, not just on the Pharisees and religious leaders, but on all the world. And again, this should not stir in us just fear and just anxiety, but this should stir in us boldness and readiness and faithfulness to Christ. So as we approach Holy Week in just a few weeks, and we remember all the stories again, it's easy for us to slip into that religiosity, isn't it? We know how the stories go. We know what each day is about, and we come from Maundy Thursday. We know what I'm going to say. We know what the Lord's Supper is about. We come to the Good Friday service. We know the story. We know how it plays out. And before long, we can wind up in the same place that Judas was, can't we? I've heard this all before. I've seen this all before, and our hearts are cold. We know all this stuff, but we're far from God. So as we come to Holy Week in a few weeks, I encourage you to take these examples and take these words to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to Judas. Take those words and their lessons and apply them to your heart by the Holy Spirit's power. And let's enter into this time expectant, not far from the Lord in our hearts, but drawing near to him in our hearts with our obedience and our faithfulness and our love and our affections. And as we pray tonight, that's going to be my prayer for all of us, that the Holy Spirit would fill us with that true, sincere love for God and love for others so that we would be working for the Master when he comes. Let's pray. Thank you, God, our Father, for the wisdom and the teaching of the Lord Jesus who with his words and these parables and these scenes reminds us what it means to be found in you. And it's not by the outward observance of some law or some tradition or some custom, but it is with a changed heart coming to you in faith to receive the righteousness from you that we could not find on our own. So God, forgive us when our hearts and minds are like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when we claim to know everything, but our hearts are far from you. When we claim to obey you, but we don't. God, forgive us of those times. And by your Holy Spirit, change us as we go through this season. As we go through these familiar stories and themes, you would stir our hearts once again with the fire of your Holy Spirit to love Jesus more to obey you more. Not to earn our righteousness from you, but because of the great gift that you have already given to us in Christ. Help us now to work for our master.
to be faithful to our master and to be looking for our master to come once again. May he find us faithful when he comes. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.